It has been a long, long time since Paul, the man didn't call Saul, made that journey to Damascus. He was on a mission, not unlike many people find themselves at days and times of their lives. They're on a mission. They have something to do, something to accomplish, something they're intent upon doing. And sometimes on the way to a mission, things happen and we get distracted and we find ourselves sometimes having a mission canceled and receiving a new mission. And certainly that's what happened to Saul on this day when he's traveling with a small group of friends to Damascus. Now make no mistake about it, his intention in going to Damascus was not for the purposes that Jesus came to earth to share but rather for the purposes of protecting his own idea of the God that he loved and the God that he thought he was serving. And that purpose was to destroy those, to imprison those, even to bring harm to those who were followers of this man Jesus because they were disrupting the religious activities that he was so comfortable with. They were causing a break among the people that he loved. They couldn't agree on what this man had taught And some of them were even saying he was the son of God, which was blasphemous to Saul. And so therefore, the penalty of death was not unreasonable in their day and age in that time. Almost 2,000 years ago. So much has changed since then, right? I mean, no longer do we take daylight time walks to get to another city and consider that a journey. You know, now we get in a car and we drive, right? I mean, it was the last time you walked from one city to another. Yeah, it's been a while, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's been a while. Not very often in our lives do we respond to what's going on in our lives in such a way as they did then. They seemed to be able just to lay anything and everything they were doing down and somehow still were fed and taken care of. I don't know about you, but I think every month at my house, 1st and 15th, people contact me to continue fellowship with me and with Sally. And sometimes they do it in the little odd things called envelopes. And sometimes it's just by mail now saying, don't forget us. It's time to pay up. And I can't write them back and say, I'm sorry, I've, I've been on a trip to Damascus. And, you know, I hadn't had time to work. They would get unhappy with that kind of environment. It's just a different world. We live in completely, completely different. We don't wear sandals everywhere we go, although we do in Texas, especially in the summer, right? We have something close to a sandal. That's what you call those flip-flop things. Terrible for your feet, by the way. But, you know, that's just what it is. <clears throat> They're popular, right? And they look so cool. You just don't take a long trip. At any rate, in the midst of all this differentness, I just want to say this morning that things aren't that different at all. There are still people who are misguided, as Saul was, about their faith in God. We hear about them on the news most days of our lives now. Misguided people who believe they're following God. And they believe it in a very uh, intense and personal way. And so they go about their mission, which is deadly to many people. And yet they go about it fully engaged to accomplish it, just as Saul did. And what happened to Saul, however, is what separates those who follow Jesus from all the rest of the world. It's what separates Christians oftentimes when we try to interpret what's going on in our, our world. And that is that Saul experienced Jesus on that walk. In fact, most scholars refer to this as the last time 
that uh, we had a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus even though Saul did not see him. But he was there. He was referred to as Lord, so Saul thought he was in the presence of God. And then Jesus had to correct him, his understanding by saying, no, this is Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting. All that was taking place while they were on this trip. And in the midst of that, and the way he got Paul's attention, is a neat trick that I really need in my arsenal. I need to be able to speak and have a blaze of light just daze people. Can you imagine what would happen if I were turned loose and people could be just dazed, whatever they're doing, if they're not followers of Jesus? That would be a cool trick. Except it was no trick here. It was reality. It was God messing, with you will, with the orderly universe he put in place for this one specific reason. And I know a lot of people say, well, when I'm like Saul and I see Jesus or hear his voice, well, guess what? Jesus didn't appear to everybody like he did to Saul. Saul was a chosen vessel for a specific time and a key to the formation of the whole body of Christ that would come thereafter. So he warranted a special appearance. Now, and then he got a special job, right? He's beaten ever so often, regularly, chased out of town over and over again, almost died numerous times. So he had a great job. Probably not the one he would have signed up for. And even Jesus says that, when he's talking to Anais. And Anais says, you want me to go do what? You want me to go to where that guy, that guy from Jerusalem is? They already knew where he was. You know, he's come here to do what he was doing in Jerusalem. Come on, Jesus, get with it. Catch up. This is not a good guy. And Jesus said, go. It's a verb. Go. In other words, he could have said in our language, would you just be quiet? You're talking to me now. I said for you to go, and you need to go. Because this man is going to play a key part in the history of the church, in the history of where we're going. Now, to Ananias' credit, he got up and he went. What's he going to do, right? This is straight in a vision that he knew to be truly the voice of God, talking to him and telling him what to do. I can just see him walking down the street, can't you? And then he walks up to the street called Straight. He goes, yeah, straight to where? Straight to my death. Straight to the death of the church here. I mean, this is really a bad idea and a bad play on words, Jesus, you know, to do this. But anyway, he goes straight to the street, goes to the man, asks, inquires, and there he is. And you can almost hear him doing it, can't you? He walks in. What does he say? Oh, God loves you. No. I love you. No. He didn't say any of that. He said... When he walked in there boldly, he just walked up to him, looked at the man, and he said, hmm, very clearly, Brother Saul, I bet that choked in his mouth almost, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit which I didn't even catch God telling him to do that. I bet he didn't like those words as soon as they were out of his mouth. He probably thought, Holy Spirit, this guy? I mean, he still looked at him going, I cannot believe that I'm doing this. But he was there. He was obedient. Give him check marks for that being obedient. And then what happened? The scales fell from his eyes. And this blind man now has a different 
sight. That's incredibly important. It's incredibly important to people who call themselves evangelical Christians. Something happened, and the beginning of his touch by Jesus on that road brought together with the healing touch of another follower of Christ, turned what was an individual path, in a sense, into a common journey. A journey that was able to do things it could never have done otherwise. The church would not have been the same without Paul. Paul would not have been the same without Ananias being willing to follow the Lord's directions. Something happened. And in that meeting, then Jesus did a cute thing. Not just a cute thing, but a powerful thing. Because what did he call him? Lord. Now it's possible to translate that word kurios there into a, a personal individual recognition. It's saying, sir, what do you want? But in the context of what he's doing and what's happened to him, that's clearly not the meaning of the word. It is Lord. Lord meaning God, meaning the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lord, what's up? And then the Lord says, this is Jesus the earthly name of the Son of God who walked this earth. You see what he's doing? He's saying to Paul, you are trying to worship me, but you have missed me because you have missed me on earth as Jesus. I am one in the same. What a powerful way to tell this faithful Jewish man who has all these talents and gifts and abilities that your intent is right to serve God, but you have missed the fullness of God when I walked the earth. You didn't get it when you held the cloak of Stephen when they stoned him to death. And you haven't gotten it afterward. It's time for you to get it. I am Jesus. I am the Son of God. Well, you know, after all, when you've been blinded by a strange light, been three days without food and water, been praying to the Father in heaven what's going on, and suddenly somebody shows up, says a few words to you, and me, you can see again, he was a captive audience, right? I mean, what was he going to say? No, I don't believe it. He still, I don't believe it. I ain't going to say that, right? And if everybody could have that experience on the road to Damascus, there would be many, many followers, right? There would be. And sometimes, probably you're like me, when I've had some particularly hard-headed, stubborn piece of humanity that will not listen to the love of the grace of God, I just want to say, Lord, just strike them blind Give them their sight back in three days and tell them who did it. I'm waiting, Lord. And, you know, it just doesn't happen every day. I, I, I would love that if just at our beck and call, Jesus would just say something that would cause people to regain their true vision. Their true vision. But it doesn't happen often. I don't know why, but that's God's plan. It has something to do with free will. It has something to do with my business and your business and what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. But in any way, I'm just convinced that it doesn't happen nearly as often as I, as I would like for it to happen. Now, after he gets his sight back, there's important little verses thrown together here for our education. He said he, said he remained with the disciples for several days. And he began proclaiming and teaching in the synagogue that Jesus was the Son of God. And people were looking at him, 
this Jewish followers gathered in that synagogue like, who are you? You came here to persecute the followers of Jesus, and now you are one. This is crazy. And he began to, of course, tell them his story and proclaiming the faith he had experienced. And you can just see the conversation and the people just with their mouths open going, what? You know, that's the way we were in Farmersville when Johnny Mac Garner was saved. You don't know who Johnny Mac Garner was, but we are kind of close to Farmersville. Anybody know Johnny Mac Garner before I go on? He was what I call a townie. I don't know where I got that name, but I just made it up as I got older. And townies to me were the people who grew up in Farmersville and other small towns. And they never did much with their life. They just remained in town. They were circling the Dairy Queen when they were 30. <laughs> they were working for $4.95 an hour, not going to church, doing a lot of visits out to the field, out a certain part of Farmersville. Everybody liked to go visit him, especially young males. Uh, he had a particular crop he harvested and he shared it with all who had a few dollars and he was one of those guys until Johnny Mac Garner came to know the Lord through a, a tremendous unbelievable experience kind of thing and then when you see him you go wow that was a lump of mess and now look at him what a change what a change. Not, not what everybody experiences, but it certainly was what Johnny Mack experienced. He was about the age of my older brother. Amazed though they were, they could not doubt what he was teaching him, and other people began to respond. However, some of the disciples there were so displeased by it that they began to plot too. And the persecutors suddenly became the persecuted. They sought to put him to death. But it didn't work because they came together around him and got him out of town. What did he do? He went right back to Jerusalem to a bigger bunch of people who were not going to believe him, right? And he started preaching there. And you, can, you know what happened. I mean, they decided to put him to death too. And in fact, in the beginning, even the disciples of Jesus wouldn't listen to him. They shunned him as well until a man named Barnabas. First it was Ananias. Now, and then there was a group of disciples that provided his escape. Now there's another man named Barnabas who, when the disciples wouldn't listen to him, stood up and testified about this man and what he was teaching and preaching. He took a risk in trusting that the conversion was not only apparent, but it was real and lasting. And he stood up and spoke to them and told them to listen to him, and they did. And again, the power of his speaking and his personality and all things that God had given him began to have great power. But they would never have heard it if Barnabas had not have stood up by his side and took on a risk to offer this man to the Jewish community there in Jerusalem. But there were these Hellenist Jews who they got into it with Paul, and pretty soon they were wanting to kill him. And this is where this part of the story ends. The, the followers there, again, the church, if you will, gathered together, put him in a basket, laid him down outside the walls. He's gone, you know. He took, they sent him off to Tarsus. They might have seen him with a few instructions. It kind of sounds like a young preacher to me. Uh, you need to be going off for a little while. You've got a lot of things to learn before you keep on preaching. So we need you to get smarter about your message. And he went to Tarsus and stayed, what, about three years? It's funny how that kind of corresponds to, well, seminary, but uh, at least in time. I'm not sure how much more it corresponded to. But he did go off, and that's kind of, kind of where the story ends in Acts until we see him again. 
And you might say, now, we all know this story. Why is it important for us today? Well, let's just, let's just kind of hit on the high spots one more time so we keep these high spots in our mind before I get to the end of the message, which is what y'all are waiting for, right? First of all, there's the presence of God. And Saul knew it was God and that God was Jesus. Secondly, this was the last post-resurrection of Jesus to anyone in regard to starting his church. Secondly, God worked through a reluctant Ananias. Thank God that God can work through reluctant people. Thank God that we have a church filled with people who are not reluctant. Thank God that people are sometimes believe enough that they can take a risk to trust what they are seeing with their eyes and people who are created in the image of God. That's not easy. That's not easy to do for reasons I'm going to get to in a minute. Thirdly, God used Barnabas to open doors for Saul to disciples. This is not a one-man show. It never has been. Fourthly, the followers of Jesus protected Saul in Damascus and in Jerusalem while they were still doubting him, I'm sure. To some degree, they protected him. And here I come to the end of the message. Don't get excited. It's a protracted ending. First of all, what we're talking about here, and the reason it's so important to us, is this is a church, it's a United Methodist congregation, who strongly believes in what is referred to as, as evangelical theology, evangelical Wesleyan theology at its best. Evangelical theology is set up in a certain kind of way to describe a certain kind of Christians. I'm not saying this is the only kind of Christians, because I've known some Christians that weren't what I would call evangelical Christians, but they were, I did believe they were Christian. They professed Christ as Savior. They lived a godly life to the best of their ability, but they were really not evangelical in the sense of the word. And I know that evangelical gets a bad name in, in a lot of places, and it refers to a lot larger group of folks than United Methodists for certain. But, but for the sake of argument this morning, let's take a look at what an evangelical Christian is. The elements are all in this story. First of all, it is a person who has recognized that they have been saved because of the divine initiative of God to love them first in Jesus Christ. Evangelicals are very much personally aware that they are not saved because of their good works or because of their family or because of the church they go to. Evangelical Christians are very much aware that they are saved because God came to them in the spirit and wooed them heart, mind, and soul and gave them the opportunity to respond. There are no self-made evangelical Christians. It is just simply not possible. The fact that God took the initiative is such a key part of that in understanding that we are saved because God first loved us. It's so important that people get that because if we don't get that Right in the beginning, it, the water just gets muddier and muddier. I hear people talking in such a way that sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to ask them, and as I've gotten older, I typically do now, so you saved yourself. And I, well, of course I did, and I said, well, that's what you just said. That's what you just meant by what you were talking. And then they go, well, I didn't mean that. And I said, good, 
Clean up what you're saying. Don't say something that makes it look like your good actions are saving you today because, quite frankly, your actions aren't that all that impressive. You can tell I'm getting older, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. Tell it like you see it. I don't meet that many people that I'm just amazed at how spiritual they are. <laughs> I don't. I meet a lot of humans who are doing a lot of good things and who are good followers of Christ, but they're not the kind that just knock me over and knock me down. And that includes when I go to preacher fellowships. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, yes, they are human too. Everybody's human. Conversion, though, is at the heart of being an evangelical. You have converted from who you were to who you're going to become. And it's at the initiative of God whose Holy Spirit has wooed you and you accepted. Secondly, it involves a personal encounter. Now, granted, some years in our culture, this, this phrase has gotten along. Well, I'm a Christian. I've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And, you know, then they start acting just like someone else acts. And you go, yeah, right. But the reality is that when you know Jesus as a Savior, know him personally, heard him, have heard him call your name, and in prayer you're talking to him and listening for his answers, when you have a relationship like your human relationships with the, your creator in heaven, then that becomes a personal relationship. Now, people get hung up about that in some churches. They say, well, I go to church. You know, I've never heard the voice of God, but I, I, my name's on the roll. I'm a faithful Christian. I give to the church. I support the church. I do all these things. But I don't know what in the world you're talking about when you say personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Are, are you trying to ask me to become a Baptist? That's what they'll say in the South, right? That's what they'll say. And I'll say, no, I'm asking you to become a Methodist. But I'm asking you to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that is what makes all the difference in your life. You can be religious and not have that relationship. It makes all the difference in the world. And out of that relationship, this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we are certain in that reality there is a divine encounter with God. Jesus said in John 17, 3, he said that eternal life is to know God and Jesus, to know them. That is relationship. The third thing that we want to talk about here as the evangelicals is surrender to the lordship of Jesus. That's what Saul did. That's what Ananias did whenever the Lord said to him, no, I'm telling you to go straight to that street and do what I'm telling you to do. He surrendered to the wisdom of God and surrendered his own will and what he thought was right to do what God wanted him to do. Surrender to the lordship of Jesus is the norm for following Christ. It's a process and it takes place over a lifetime. And everybody's at a different place on the road, but without that willingness to surrender ourselves and who we understand Jesus to be, there really is a lacking in the faith. You have to understand that. The difference is interpreting Scripture, and that's why there's so much argument about Scripture, because it makes all the difference in the world. Because, you see, if you've already surrendered to do whatever Jesus wants you to do, and you read about what Jesus wants you to do in your book, then it's just a matter of surrendering, Right? Giving yourself over to who Jesus wants you to be. It's like the tithe. Once I understood that the scriptures tied giving to my relationship of surrender to God, tithing became a lot easier. My hand shook less when I was writing those early checks. You know, I'm like, this is a car payment. This is a car payment and a half. 
We don't have much money. We're going to starve. We're going to prison. So we gave all our money to the church. None of that ever happened. But what happened was I surrendered. Surrender. I didn't want to be a preacher. Quite frankly, I still don't want to be a preacher, but it's too late now. <laughs> Being a preacher hampers me in a lot of ways, and we won't go into that. That's too long a sermon for you to stay for. But surrendering to what Jesus wanted me to do became the essential and the easy answer to everything else I was seeking for in life. Surrender must occur. The body of Christ, this is the next point if you're not keeping up with me. I'm trying to get through here. It's important. It's critical. And individual Christianity has no place in the scriptures. It has no place in the real life. If you think you can do it on your own, you're only kidding yourself. You're not kidding Jesus. And you're not kidding yourself very well. When you see people come down here and pray at the chancel rail for one another while we're singing, they are living the Christian life. It is the body of Christ taking care of those who are experiencing struggles of any kind at any particular moment. In a perfect world, at some time, every one of you will be down here and be prayed for by others. It is what we do when we are the body of Christ. We take care of each other. We hold each other accountable. We pray for God's grace. We come along beside you, if you will, in the same way that the Holy Spirit does to give you help, just like Barnabas did when the whole church was rejecting Paul in Jerusalem. He still saw at that point. Okay, so the body of Christ is critical. And it all involves, and this is the last point. I know you're ready for this one because this is the most important one. And this is the hardest one. You know what it is? You say, well, if I name something, that won't be what you're looking for. You're probably right. That's why I'm going to walk over here so I can get right down in your face to say to you the simple truth of being an evangelical Christian. An evangelical Christian is one who is not afraid to risk life with people that they're not sure are completely saved. They're willing to risk fellowshipping with somebody who acts curious about Jesus. They're willing to risk going to somebody's house that doesn't even like Christians. They might even have a sign on the door saying, if you're a Christian, go next door. You know, in other words, don't knock on my door. They're the ones who are willing to risk that even someone who's done everything anti-Christian is worth being saved. And they believe that. An evangelical Christian believes that proclaiming the gospel story to anyone and everyone that has not heard it in the right kind of way that they can believe it is willing to share it. That's what an evangelical is. An evangelical looks at a person in prison on death row and goes, that is a child creating the image of God. And that soul can still be saved. We need to tell that person the story. This may be the only time they'll get the opportunity. An evangelical Christian is a person who will not leave their brother and sister alone, but will go to them in love, even though that's their, their blood brother or sister, and somehow find a loving way to bring up church in Jesus. Basically, bring up Jesus, forget the church. Bring up Jesus. Because you want your brother and your sister to live eternally with God. You are ready to proclaim the words and you are willing to take the risk, which means you trust God with the work of people being saved. You are trusting God to take a risk of your own and do the scary thing. And it's scary going up to somebody you don't know or hearing somebody talk on a plane. You're taking a long plane flight. You're locked up, right? It's hard to get away from somebody in a plane. 
But if you're with that person, you know they're not a Christian. You're sitting there. Sometimes you're having this argument. Should I mention Jesus to this person or not? Because they obviously know nothing about him. Why not? That's what an evangelical Christian would do. Turn the conversation toward faith. You can do it. Think of how many conversations you've already changed on the way. You change the conversation from weather to the story about the cowboys. <laughs> right? It's not different. Except you're turning the conversation to focus on Jesus and someone's personal relationship with the Savior of humankind. An evangelical is willing to look at a person who's done awful, terrible things and say, so have I. If God can save me, God can save you. That's who I think God is calling us to be. The kind of people who are willing to take a risk, trusting God with the future as we move forward together as a congregation. Father God, I thank you for these people. They love you. They exhibit their love in many and varied ways at different times and with different goals. But they are consistently in love with you. And I thank you for that. All of us, Lord, have struggles. We all have wars. We all need have things and places and actions in our lives that need to be turned over to your lordship we need to submit ourselves in a new way to a specific area in our life we know that's what life is always going to be like and we thank you that in that process we become more and more like you although we are never you lord god if there's someone here in this church this morning who does not know that god loves them and wants to receive them and has taken the initiative to speak to them by the power of the holy spirit then let them come forward and become one of your followers here on this earth Father, if there's one who's been trying to walk alone and they do not want to walk alone any longer, but they want to walk with you, just let them come forward and let the body of Christ grab hold of them and share life with them. Lord, we know this is your desire for every person. And so we lift it for you today. And we lift it in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord.